If you talk about defenders, the most famous defender we had was Nesta, one of the best in the world. If you talk about midfielder, we had a lot. Diego Simeone, who today is coach of Atletico Madrid. We had Nedved, who is vice president of Juventus. We had Sebastian Veron, Mancini, Vieri. We had Salas, Crespo. I forgot one, Sinisa Mihailovic, one of the best left foots in the world. Incredible team. Extremely expensive. <laughs> Welcome to the Football Studio, a show where I speak with influential people I look up to in the football industry. I'm Sebastian Alvarado. My goal with these conversations is to get to know the person behind the title. I want to understand how they think, how they got to where they are, and get their personal perspectives and insights on all things life, career, and football. In this episode, Sven-Jaren Eriksson reflects over a coaching career that spans over 40 years. He grew up in a small town of 5,000 people in Sweden. We talk about that upbringing, how it shaped him and informed the leadership style he applied when managing some of the world's best teams and players. We also touch on his passion for reading books, the attention that comes with the England job, being asked by North Korean officials to fix the World Cup, and the sad feeling he has when thinking about a life that doesn't include much more than football. Here's my conversation with Sven-Jaren Eriksson. Sven, welcome to the football studio. Thank you very much. How are you doing today? I'm fine. And you? Yeah, not too bad. We're getting used to this uh, somewhat new reality and and new state of of the world that that we find ourselves in. Yes, but I think I have... uh... Have it better than you have in New York. I am in Värmland in Sweden, and I'm in the middle of nowhere. So if I'm inside or outside, it's always quarantine. No people. I hear you on that. It's different worlds. So with no team to manage and with the travel restrictions and not having the ability to watch football in person, I assume you watch quite a bit on TV. But apart from that, what do you do to keep yourself busy these days? I'm looking at other things. I'm reading a lot, uh, on the phone a lot, uh, exercising, uh, try to keep fit. What are you currently reading? What I'm currently reading, I'm reading August Strindberg, I'm reading Einhorn, Swedish writer. Mm-hmm. I read some history. I always have four or five books close to the bed. Has it been like that throughout your life? Has reading been an important component for you? Yes, it always has been. I always, since I went to school, uh, always been interested in reading. And, and of course, now when I'm not working and when I, there are no meetings, there are almost nothing. You read more than normally. Is there a typical genre that you deviate towards or you read a bit of everything? Uh, a little bit of everything, but I, I like uh, memories, uh, what do you say? No, not memories. You say memoirs, memoirs, and uh, historic books. A lot of history. I like. In what way has reading helped you throughout your journey in football? Oh, when I was younger, I I tried to read as many football books as possible. And the first football book I got was Gold och Gröna Planer, Gold and Green Pitches with Gunnar Nordahl which he wrote 1950, talking about his life in Milan, in Italy. Since then, I'm reading a lot of football books, of course, but today less. Today, it's a lot of other things. What's the book that has impacted you the most? I don't know. (laughs) I'm reading constantly, at least one today, maybe two, two, three hours a day. There are so many good books. Sometimes I look at Selma Lagerl of Gustav Schröding and those which, uh, as a Swede, I should know them. I should have read all of them, but I haven't. And it's nice to go back and see how they, uh, how they became so famous. What media do you consume to stay up to date? Well, in the morning at breakfast, I put on the news. Uh, sometimes it's, it's TV One, Good Morning, or what's the name of the program? I don't know. And it can be CNN and it can be BBC News to see what's happening in the world. 
than reading newspaper. Not really very much. It's more television. Apart from reading, what kinds of routines do you have to constantly be evolving and developing yourself? Well, you know, the routines has always been very, very important in my life. And uh, the best thing when I feel at the best is when I have a club team mm. as, a, as a coach, of course. Uh, because then you really have a routine. You wake up early in the morning, you are in the training ground early in the morning, you have training more or less every day. And then you know that you have one or two matches a week. Uh, and that goes on. And the routine is very, very much the same. You're arriving in tra training ground, you're there before everybody else, you're waiting for the other coaches coming in. You program what to do in training and if you haven't done it the afternoon before and so on. And uh, you know that Saturday, it's an important game. Whoever you meet, it's always important. And uh, you travel or you go into a hotel the day before. So I like that. And when I don't work, what I miss is a lot of things, of course. You miss the football in itself, but I, I, I miss the routines. So then for me, even if now, I try to keep the routines. I'm up rather early, 7, 7.30. I look at the news, I eat breakfast, I'm out taking a walk with the dog, back to see some papers and uh, phone calls. and things. So it, it, the day is more or less the same, and uh, I'm happy with that. With a whole life in football, more than 40 years of managing, at 72 years old today, What still drives you? Well, football is probably the only thing I know how to do. <laughs> If I should have another job today, I would be uh, in big problems, I guess. And football is a drug, for sure. If you're used to it, it's like the body wants uh, adrenaline once, twice a week when you have the matches. Because... When you're in football, what you really live for, more than the routine and training, so, are really the matches. Because you're nervous the day before, you're nervous match day, you're extremely tense. That's a drive, I think. And uh, now it's okay, but uh, during my time in my career, when I left England, that was, uh, it was 2006, I think, then I had one year without job. And then I didn't really felt okay. I was traveling around the world and uh, I was not happy. But today I have a certain age, so I accept today that uh, maybe it's it, not maybe. It's much more difficult to get a job today than it was 10, 20 years ago. How does that make you feel? Uh, it's okay. If they offer me a job, I might take it or not. But I'm okay either way. But uh, I should like to have a, a, another job. Uh, that's for sure. But if it doesn't happen, I'm okay anyhow. So I have a good life. I'm healthy, which is the most important thing in life. If you are ill, sick, uh, not healthy, life is very bad. You mentioned here that you enjoy reading memoirs. You published your own memoir some six, seven years ago. In that, you said that when you had read the manuscript from start to finish, which you did in one sitting, you were surprised by the feeling you got. You said you felt depressed. Why is that? I read it, but I didn't like it. I didn't like to read about myself because the thought coming into your head, okay, that was your life and that, that was it. And that's a little bit depressing. Was it, that was all your life? 80, 95% football? Family, of course, children, of course, but uh, football, football, football. And maybe that's the way how it was. I don't regret it, I must say, but anyhow, when I read it, I thought, Ah, life went too quick. You were surprisingly open 
in the book and also telling about aspects in in your life that not even those closest to you maybe always knew why was it important to put it all out there well you can write a book about yourself and you can talk about that year my son was born another year my daughter was born i was married before that and then all the result, that game was Sunday that time and we lost 2-1 and I was uh, angry and whatever it is. But do people really want to read a book like that? If I buy a book from another man or woman, I want to read about their life. I really want to know them because what's been written in newspapers on television, if it's a singer, a actor or a sportsman, you know them because they've been famous. So you really want to see something, to read about something new. That's why I thought, well, if I'm going to write a book, then I will open up, not uh, just writing about football results. I'd like to rewind the tape a little bit. Um, you obviously grew up in a small town in Torsby and Värmland in Sweden, less than 5,000 people in, in that community. How did that upbringing form and shape you? Mm. Well, people from this part of Sweden, we are rather calm. And I've always been accused to be sometimes too calm. So I think I got it from here. And I, of course, you get it from your parents. My father is very, very much the same as me. I almost never saw my father angry. Yeah. Good man. Uh that's one thing. And then, you know, 50th, I think we were very lucky. We were born up here in the, in the woods, you could say. Because it was school, it was sport, uh, cinema every second Sunday at 3 o'clock. We didn't have television. So if you were a sport guy, a sport girl, you had a wonderful life. We were not disturbed by uh, things which might disturb young people today a lot, unfortunately. When we were 10 years old, we didn't need a coach to play football. We played by ourselves, put two stones, and that became a, a goal. And then uh, we made two teams, and then we played. Because we didn't have really other things to do. School, nature, of course. So I think, uh, in one way, it uh, was a very lucky grown-up and sport, of course, became extremely important, especially for me and the other boys and girls who had the same interest. What's the best lesson that your father taught you? I think I was 17, something like that. I came home one Saturday night drunk. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, that was not very good. My mother was hysteric and she didn't speak to me for a week, I think, or more. <laughs> No breakfast in the morning when I came up for a week. But my father took me in the kitchen alone with me and said, uh, explain to me why this was not a good way to go in life. And uh, he did it in a very, very calm and uh, educative way, I would say. I will always remember that. And uh, I thought more than once next time before I got drunk, that's for sure that calm and educating way that and demeanor that he had, is that something that you then applied to when you were in management and oftentimes dealing with all kinds of different personalities? Yeah, and I mean, my father at that time, it was not many times he said, no, I want to speak to you. And when he was angry, he said, Sven, you're an, <laughs> not Svenis. So... When that happens, you listen. Absolutely, you listen. And I think I, I, I got that. But what I got also was that if you want to educate people, if you want to change the way what people are doing and learning people things, you have to talk to them. You have to sit down and talk to them. You cannot uh, screaming at them. And I think I learned that from my father, for sure. And I always try to educate my children like that very seldom screaming at them because I, I don't think they would be better or they will learn by that. But if you sit down with them and really talk serious business with them, not business, but serious, 
I think that's a better way to do it. But to be a leader, to be a coach, uh, you know, there are so many ways and you can never say what's right and what's wrong. Someone screaming and they having extremely good results. Others are more calm with good results. So you never know. People who, who've reached the top in their field, they oftentimes have a key, like a triggering moment behind their success. What was that for you? Wow. First of all, I've been extremely lucky. I was at the right time and the right, right place. Uh, for example, when I was offered to take over Gothenburg, a Swedish first division team, famous one, I came exactly in the right time when there was a new generation coming up. Then if you talk about how, if I have a strength as a leader, as a coach, uh, then it is, uh, I think I'm good to create good atmosphere around me with players, with the, the board, with the chairman, with the press, uh, with the fans, which is extremely important if you want to be a coach. If you want to be a leader, if you want to be a boss in a job, if you can create good atmosphere, you're strong when uh, you are defeated, when you lose football games, in my case, because you, you know that you, you will do that sooner or later. Hopefully not very much, but that will happen. But if you don't have a good atmosphere in your around you, you are weak the time you, you lose. And I think it's the same if, if you are a boss, a lot of workers under you in a fabric or in an office or in a bank, whatever it is. I, I think it's, it's rather much the same. To touch on your career a little bit, now that you're sitting at home in Vermland and you have some time to reflect out of all the moments that you had in, when you were coaching in football, what's the most special moment that comes to mind? It's dangerous to sitting down thinking about the past. <laughs> it makes you sad. But if I'm going to look at um, achievement in my past, there must be not one, there must be at least three. One is, of course, to... Uh, having the Swedish team I talked about, Gothenburg, to win a title in Europe, which that team is still the only team ever winning something in Europe. And they did it twice. They did it once with the first time with me and another time without me. So that achievement for the whole club, for the fans in Gothenburg, for the players and for me, that opened the whole football world because suddenly, wow, what, what happened here? A team not professional going and beating Valencia, Hungary and winning a huge title in Europe, which never happened. So that was extremely good achievement. Secondly, if you are in Italy and you're coaching a team which is not Juventus, Milan or Inter and you win the Scudetto, you win the league, then it's huge because that happens very rarely. It's those three big teams, Juventus, Milan and Inter. They win 90, 95% of all the titles. So if uh, you win with another team, it's big. And I did it, we did it with Lazio and Lazio hadn't won. They had won one title in their whole life. And that was, well, I don't know, 25 years before we did it. So that's big win. Then, of course, to get the job uh, to be... The manager, as they say in England, or the Bundskapten, as we say in Sweden, of England, that's uh, something who made me extremely proud for almost six years when I had the job. That was big and that was extremely unexpected, even for me. Italy being very special to you, and in, in addition to Lazio, have coached uh, Roma, Fiorentina, Sampdoria. To put it into some perspective, and especially for the younger generations today, so when you're coaching Lazio and you're going for the Scudetto, put that era and that team into perspective. That era, that time, the Italian football was the best in the world. It was the best league. All the best football players wanted to play in Italy. As Today, they want to play probably in Premier League, which is the best, most famous, most expensive league in the world today. And mo most difficult to win, I would say, also. 
But at that time, during 80s, 90s, a little bit into 2000, uh, Italian football had that. Uh, they were the best. So I had the chance to go to Barcelona and I could go to Germany as well during that period. But I I didn't want to leave Italy. I wanted to stay, even if I got to Sampdoria, not to Bayern Munich, because of the Italian football, how it was at that time. Very, very good and extremely good football players in every team. Who were the players in that Lazio team that made the greatest impact on you? And I see you smiling when, when you hear that. Yeah, if you talk about defenders, the most famous defender we had was Nesta, one of the best in the world, I would guess. Later he went to Milan and had a marvelous uh, career. If you talk about midfielder, we had a lot of them. Diego Simeone, who today is coach of Atletico Madrid. We had Nedved, who is vice president of Juventus today. He was a fantastic football player. We had Sebastian Veron, national team of Argentina. We had Mancini, striker, midfielder, whatever. Fantastic. We had uh, Vieri, we had Salas, strikers. We had uh, Crespo. Incredible team. Extremely expensive. <laughs> and uh, very, very, very good. Oh, I forgot one, uh, Sinisa Mihailovic, one of the best left foots in the world. And it came down to the last game of that season to win it. Take me through that last game. Well, it was very strange and I, I don't think any team has won the league in that way as we, we won it. We played at home, you know, the last match of the year, it's the same day and the same time, all, all the teams playing. And um, we played at home. And we won, as we should do, because we had a, an easy game on the paper. We won and everything's okay. But after 45 minutes, Juventus, they played in Perugia. And Juventus, if they won that game, they would win the league. And if we won and they lost, we would win the league. In halftime in Perugia, where Juventus played, it became rain, but not normal rain. Incredible rain. So the match was postponed for 45 minutes, I think. So when we were ready with our game in Rome, we had to sit in a dressing room or whatever, we were waiting for the result coming from Perugia. And that was extremely nervous <laughs> 45 minutes, sitting in a dressing room, waiting for, for the result coming. And uh, Perugia won 1-0 and we won the league, but we, did, we knew it almost one hour after our game was finished. And it was amazing because of the 80,000 in our stadium in Rome, Olympic Stadium, I think 70,000 stayed to listen to the results coming one hour later, 45 minutes later. So it was very, very special. And uh, you have 45 minutes where you cannot do anything if you are believing God. You pray if you are suspicious, you do things which you think brings luck. <laughs> But you cannot do really anything. You can, you can just wait and be nervous. And that's what, what's happened to all of us. What were you doing? I was walking in the dressing room to my office, looking out of uh, the people on the stadium from, from inside. Walking. I couldn't sit. Some of the players, I remember, Diego Simeone, I think. No player took the shower. For example, I was sitting in a dressing room and Diego Simeone, he didn't move in 45 minutes. He was sitting exactly in the same way. He didn't say one word. <laughs> and I think he was superstitious. That was a special day, special afternoon. And you became the king of Rome, as you said in your book. Yes, if you wanted it or not, yes. Life is very, very nice in Rome, normally. But if you win the league with Lazio, it's extremely good. How did your life change after that? Well, I was rather popular because I've been the coach of Roma many years before that. And Lazio, we had won some smaller titles like uh, Italian Cup and things like that. But winning the league is, yeah, as I said before, it's very big. So even today, if I go into so special restaurants, uh, they will remember and um, they pay the lunch, even today. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
the other special one in your career, and as you mentioned, obviously being the, the England job, and you've been asked and talked about that a million times, what's the most common question you get about the England job? In my generation, and I think a lot of generations are born up in one way with English football, thanks to television. I don't know how many years, Saturday at four o'clock or three o'clock, whatever it was, it was English football uh, almost all year round. So I think in my generation, we knew more about uh, English football than we knew about uh, Swedish football. And we saw more football from England on high level than we did in Sweden. And of course, coming from the countryside where I was born, we didn't have a first division team Swedish year around. When that offer came, uh, it was something I felt I can't say no to that. It's a little bit stupid and, uh, because I had an extremely good life, very popular in, in Rome, Lazio. But I, I thought, uh, well, I thought 10 seconds maybe that, uh, yes, of course, I will take that. Because if I haven't done that, I would have regretted that all my life. Clubs you can always take, but that job is uh, probably the biggest in the world. Maybe to train Brazil, the same level. But to be the coach of England, it's. I thought it was big before I took it. And when I got it, I recognized it was bigger than I thought. In what way? Well, you became something who belonged to the English people. You became, uh, I won't say in popularity, but you became like the royal family, like uh, the prime minister of the country, like Tony Blair was during my time. You belong to, to the country and uh, wherever you go, people are nice. Wherever you go, you take a taxi, they talk to you, they talk football. What are we going to do next game? What are we going to do next World Cup? So it was extremely special feeling for me. I had good times in Sweden, in Portugal, in, in Italy, but this was something, well, 60 million people pushing you. <laughs> try to do a good result in the, in the big tournament. But you became one of the, which everyone talks talking about. And they, they want you to be successful. Of all the moments you had with the England team, what's the one that gave you the greatest joy? It's easy, I would say, to tell that. If you talk to football fans during that time, they will say, uh, when England beat Germany away, 5-1. Uh, because we, more or less, we, England, we we had to make a positive result in other way. The World Cup 2002 would be very difficult to reach. And when we went to Germany, uh, we were not favourites at all. Not at all. And then you come out from the Olympic Stadium in Munich, winning 5-1. That's, that couldn't happen. That shouldn't be possible <laughs> to beat Germany at their home. With that figures. So that, was, of course, was a special. And people, football people, who uh, saw or listened to that game on television, radio, were there. They will never forget it. Never, ever. That's gone to the history forever, that game. It's still talked about as maybe the greatest single game win that the English team has had. I would guess so. If you look at the, there are maybe others, but... If you make a list, uh, I would guess that that game will be very, very, very high on that list. Media, obviously, being such a big component, being the, the England coach, especially the less serious and maybe non-footballing media, what would you say is the biggest misconception that the media had about you? If you look on it afterwards, I did rather good results. So I was, and I'm still a little bit proud of what what we did in football there, because that was good. Then, of course, I became uh, famous because of uh, women. And that was something I didn't really want to be. But because of uh, some part of the media doing everything to find out what's happening in my private life, and they did everything, even to listen to my mobile phone during two three years, every message, every talk I had on the phone. So that's 
the bad thing of England and being rather famous. I was famous, even if I didn't want to be famous. You are famous with that job. And that, that's bad. And you can see today, I mean, the royal family, Prince Harry and his wife, they have decided to, to leave from the royal house. The reason is simple. It's the press. And I can understand that uh, wife. And the amazing thing is that she should be used to um, press and uh, whatever they write because she was an actor. But I guess that was also an extremely bad surprise for her coming to that country and being in that position. So unfortunately, that's bad with England, but uh, you have to live with it and you can't change that. And uh, you have to accept it and live with it or, or you leave I decided to live with it, and after a while, you don't care. I didn't care about what they was writing about me. Because you can't do that. You cannot uh, be sad and be sorry and be angry every time it's something wrong in the paper, because then it will happen more or less every day. But to say that, that's part of the press. Most of the football press which wrote about me during all these years, they are good people. They criticize you if you lose football games and they put you up in the sky if you win. So nothing strange with that. But unfortunately, the other part of the press, some of the tabloids, they were not nice and they didn't want to be nice. You said in, and described in your book and said that it took 30 years before getting fired for the first time. But after the England job, you didn't keep a single job other than the shortest stint with the Ivory Coast team. Why is that? Well, I think I did some sort of a mistake when I had Manchester City. I was sector at them. And I left Europe. If I look back to what I should have done otherwise, that's one of the things. I should have stayed in, in Europe. Because in Europe, the biggest football jobs are. When you're coming out to the smaller jobs around the world, it's much more insecure. It's a lot of results. Everything depends on result, which is important all over the world, but extremely important in the lower leagues. And it's a lot of politics. It's not like England or Sweden or Italy that the coach, the manager, he decides everything about how to play, who to play, and things like that. When you come outside Europe, Mexico, for example, there are a lot of opinions from all the club owners, which is the whole football association, about who's going to play, why don't the play from my club is playing, and a lot of politics every, every day, and it's boring. That was maybe a, an excuse, but um, a little bit like that. As happens in the football world, but you've been in many, in many conversations, even negotiations about different jobs that you either turned down or, or didn't get. What's the one job? that you wish that you really got? Barcelona once, and I went to Roma instead. So who knows? And that was the time when Maradona came to Barcelona. But as I said before, that seems today a very strange decision. But at that time, Italian football was the best in the world, not the Spanish football. So that's why I chose it. But who knows if I had taken another turn. You never know, and it's no meaning to think about that neither. Do you have any regrets? No. If you sit down and really thinks about, uh, think about these things, every, every game you lost, yeah, I would like to uh, play it again. And probably I will not do exactly the same. I will play other players or another tactic or whatever. But maybe you lose anyhow. So it's, uh, it's not uh, positive, it's not uh, productive to go around regretting things. Sometimes we have done stupid things, uh, not only in football, in life, and uh, I don't think I'm the only one. But uh, try to learn from it if it's too stupid, and life goes on. What's the most perfect game of football you've ever coached? I was very proud of uh, the game uh, we played 2002 in the World Cup with England against Argentina. 
I think that was selected uh, tactically the best uh, football game of that uh, World Cup by uh, FIFA FIFA people. And we won that game 1-0. And Argentina was super favourites. And that was when we were in the same group as Sweden. It was Sweden, Nigeria, Argentina and England. Very difficult group. And Sweden and uh, England, we went through. And Argentina went home. So... I think that was an extremely good game. If you beat Germany away, of course that's big, with Gothenburg in Germany beating Hamburg in the final 3-0 at Hamburger Volkpark Stadium, that's big. You've been involved in, and you talk about it in your book and it's the type of situations that you, you almost must have been there to even believe it. I'm thinking about a couple. There is uh, a few situations with a very eccentric owner, uh, Shinawatra at, uh, at Manchester City. Uh, there's another incident with the Nats County and, and how that went down. What is that one when you sit with your, your friends at a bar? And you're going to tell them a story that, you know, you must have been there to to really believe it. What's that one story you would share? Oh, ho, ho, ho. And that's I know- a good question. <laughs> I don't know. But in my life in football, of course, you can say if I met the Pope. I met the Queen in England. I met Nelson Mandela, Tony Blair, whatever. A lot of people, which, of course, is huge memories. Uh, North County, they more or less forced me to go to North Korea for a week. So I've been in North Korea. Tell me that story. <laughs> well, the owner, North County, they did business, I was told so, with North Korea. And they should go there for a business trip. And I think it was a delegation of about 15, 20 people, maybe. And they asked me to come with them. And I said, no, I don't want to go to North Korea. And I asked uh, foreign ministers in England if I should go to North Korea. And they said, absolutely not. You should not go there because that's very, very bad. I did the same with the Swedish uh, foreign ministers, whatever it was. And they said, yes, you can go. And we have a consulate there. And you will have lunch with them. And no problem. So... To have the things going on in Notts County, to make it go through, to find money, to find uh, the target they, they wanted. They wanted Notts County from League Two going up to Premier League. We needed to do that trip, so they convinced me. I went there. And that was amazing, of course, like a country. 2,000 private cars in the whole country at that time. We're not allowed to go out. We lived in a villa all together. Very nice villa with big garden, but outside, no, we couldn't move. There were guards with copists standing at the gates. No, we cannot go forward. And uh, I met the Federation and what they really wanted from me, they wanted uh, help because I knew that I was sitting in a a football committee in uh, FIFA with very good people, with Pelé, with Eusebio, with Beckenbauer. and, And we had regular meetings. So what they wanted, they wanted to help with the draw. And I said, what do you mean by that? Well, you are in the committee. Can't you help us to come to a good group? This was for the World Cup 2010, I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. So I said, that's not possible <laughs> that I can do anything about the draw. They didn't believe me. They thought I was uh, nasty. They, they thought that uh, that would be easy if you are a member of that committee. Of course you can help us. And they asked, do you want money? No, I said, I don't want any money. But I said, it's absolutely impossible. And that was amazing because the question in itself, it's amazing. But the amazing thing was the reaction of them. They thought this is possible. And when I said it's not possible, they didn't believe me. <laughs> Then you will reflect, this is totally another world. And it is, it was, it still is. Yeah. The football world never ceases to surprise you. Um, you've said that you grew up poor and would likely die poor. Why? <laughs> well, I... I've been stupid in life. I did, did a lot of mistakes. And when I lived in England, uh, I met a man 
Samir Khan is his name, who should help me investing money, and I trusted him, and I became a poor man after that. Not poor, but I lost a lot of money, huge amount of money, as I, I, I saw it on my level. And I didn't have really good jobs after Mexico, for example, when this came out that uh, I was struggling finding cash. But uh, other jobs helped me, so I will not die very poor. I don't think so. If I don't become 150 years, and I don't think I will be that. <laughs> I will die, not extremely rich, but not poor. Rich in life experience, though. Yes, of course. Football has taken me to to a lot of uh, things, not only in football, but other things. And uh, yeah, I've been lucky. I'm just going to shoot a set of uh, rapid fire questions and then we'll we'll wrap it at that. Um, okay. What's your favorite team? Liverpool. If you cannot say Messi or Ronaldo, who's the best player in the world? I cannot say Slatan because he was, I think, number three in the world for many years. Today he's going down, of course. Who would I say then? Uh, no, I don't know. It's all, always Messi or Ronaldo. And out of the two, who's the best? For me, Messi. Who's the best player you've coached? Probably Roberto Falcao, Brazilian midfielder, which I had in Roma. He played for Brazil. He was a fantastic football player, a fantastic leader on the pitch, a fantastic captain. Yeah, most important player I, I had in my team. Who's the craziest player you've ever managed? <laughs> well, I had some crazy players. Alan Boxic is a man I will always remember because a good man, nice man, but crazy. Sometimes he did things which you couldn't understand what was said. And if I asked him the day after, I said, what was that, Alan Boxic? He said... Mister, sometimes it doesn't work out there. I'm sorry. What's an example of that? We, now I'm talking Lazio. Uh, we played an important game at home. And this is before the game. I'm standing outside my own dressing room, talking to the other coach. And suddenly I hear people screaming in, in our dressing room. So I go in and see what's what's going on here. Because that's no, not normal. And I heard the voices very upset. And Boxy said, he showed me the shirt, the match shirt, and he said, I cannot play in this one. What's the problem? I said, it's too small. I said to the kitman, do you have another one? Yeah, but the same size. And he always played in this size, so nothing has changed. And uh, the training ground was so far away, so no one could go there and bring come back before the match started. So I said to Alan, you have to play in this shirt or go home. And that was a joke from me. He took off the shirt and he went home. <laughs> and this is 45 minutes before the game. And I went out, outside the, the door, and I thought he would uh, he would change inside there. But uh, the owner of the team <laughs> came, Kragnauti, and I was standing with him. And suddenly, Alan, the door opens from the dressing room. Alan, dressed not for football, went home. <laughs> And the owner said, where is he going? <laughs> and I really didn't know what to say. I said, we had some problems, so he's not playing today. But that was one of these uh, absolutely crazy things. And the day after, he was waiting for me early in the morning in my office. And he said, I'm sorry. It was one of those days, he said. I don't know why it happened. So if you want to find me, find me whatever you want. And I'm sorry, and I'm going to say sorry to the fans, to the owner, to the players. So, what to do? <laughs> you cannot scream. And But he was a good man. <laughs> but that was a crazy thing. <laughs> What's a recommendation to somebody who wants to follow in your footsteps? I think if you want to be a coach, you have to see as much football as possible. 
and try to go to see trainings and try to have contacts with different coaches, try to have a word with them and look at football games, look at trainings. That's the best way you, you, you can learn, much better than going courses. Of course, if you want to be a first division coach, you have to go the courses. But to see football, I, d- I did a lot when I was young. I went to Ajax, I went to Liverpool, I went to a lot of teams to look at training. And I think I learned more there than I did on all the courses I went to. Who's a leader you look up to and you think people should learn from? Oh, there are many, many, many. I like Tony Blair. I liked Obama. Their way of uh, express themselves, uh, their way of, uh, of being. If you talk about football, I know a lot of good football coaches. The best one was Torgeip. He helped me and he's 10 years older than me. So you cannot learn a lot from him today by looking at his training because he's not training. But there are a lot of many good young ones today. So go and find them. That's the best way to do Write to clubs, ask if you can come to see training. The most powerful man in football? It was for sure Sepp Blatter during many, many years. Extremely powerful. I'm not sure that the the present FIFA president is that powerful, but uh, powerful, of course. If you are the president of FIFA, you have a lot of power. What is Sven-Jöran Eriksson uniquely qualified to do? When I'm sitting looking at TV in my house, I think I'm better than all all of them, but probably I'm not. (laughs) But you think so, especially when you see they're doing stupid things. Uh, I think I can handle difficult people very, very well. The best coach in football today? It could be Guardiola, but it's very difficult to say You know, if you are the coach of uh, the richest team in the world, the chance to win is very, very big. It's like you are the coach of Barcelona or Real Madrid. The chance to win is almost bigger than it is to lose, whatever you do with them. So are these the best coaches? Normally they are selected to be there, yes, because they win. But they also have the best players. And saying that it's not always easy to coach famous players. But anyhow, it's easier to win with Barcelona than it is with uh, Newcastle. That's for sure. You've read many books, uh, as we mentioned uh, here when we started. But if you had to recommend one book for people to read, which one is that? Yes. Read Stefan Einhorn, The Art to Be Kind. This is in Swedish. I don't know if that's exists in English. That's one of my favorites. What's a film recommendation? Uh, For the moment, I'm looking at a series called uh, Vikings. I don't think it's the best I've ever seen, but uh, um, it's always one film which I saw twice. Uh, What's the name of that? I don't remember. I'm not a big (laughs) film, but... That's all right. Um, okay, last two here. Uh, do you have anything you would like to recommend? Uh, try to stay healthy. Try to behave in a good way. Treat people with respect. You don't need to be religious or you don't need to be... Uh, but be kind to people. Respect people and help each other. Whatever we do, we need help. You need help. I need help. Everybody needs help. And uh, I'm not saying that just because of the coronavirus, which we have now, but life in general is much easier if you are kind to people, if you help people, if you can. Last one. Who do you think I should interview in this podcast? Take, uh, you will have a lot of people listening to you. Take David Beckham. He's the most famous sport personality in the world for me. And he was not the best football player in the world, but he had something. I had him as a captain for almost six years in England. He had something which wherever we went with Beckham, it was chaos. 
cows, cows, cows. People everywhere. And they all wanted an autographer or a photo with Beckham. Not with Steven Gerrard or Frank Lampard or Michael Owen. No, Beckham. That was it. <laughs> Do you have any suggestion for how I get him? I think that's a little bit difficult. And I cannot give you his number. <laughs> but uh, I think he has a lot of agents around him. So I think uh, that's one thing you can put on a list, the list for him. Definitely putting him on, him on a list. Do you have anybody who's, who's more attainable? Why not the Swedish uh, coach, national coach? Yeah, he's a good one. He's an interesting character for sure. Absolutely. He's doing a very good job. Is that the one job that you wish that you still had an opportunity to get? No, no, no. I will never have that. Not at my age. And that would not be right against anyone. And, and now uh, Jan, he's doing a great job and he will be there a long time, hopefully. All right, Sven. I want to thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, fascinating conversation, albeit uh, short. I think we, we need several more sessions to be able to cover even even half your life. There's a lot more there and a lot of insights and, and learnings, but I really appreciate your time. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. Take care and good luck. Thank you and likewise. Stay healthy. You as well. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please tell a friend about it. Subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts and write a review on iTunes. It will help tremendously in getting awareness around this show. I'll be back next week with a new episode. Thanks again and enjoy the weekend. Mm-hmm.